Some Lords of Pain and welcome to the right side of the pond. It is Friday and apologies that uh, we were actually off air last week. We did record a show. Well, no, we did do a show, but then technical difficulties, gremlins, and we didn't have a show. So apologies if we... you were desperate for the right side of the ponds. But you know, a week off from us, maybe not the worst thing in the world. We chip shopped. And, uh, and then I chip shopped this week for Sports Entertainment is Dead as well. So I'm on a roll. It is uh, clearly uh, the time for technical difficulties. But anyway, uh, we've had our brief uh, uh, proroguing and we're back. So here we are. Um, who would know how much mileage we can get out of that? How much mileage we can get <laughs> out, of that, out of that joke? <laughs> <laughs> Prorogation of the pond. For a week. Uh, it's like Parli- a- pa- you, know, you know what's happened, don't you, Mav? Parliament is in abeyance. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The pond was in abeyance <laughs> last week. Uh, do you know, like, when somebody in, in years' time, somebody like us, but, but perhaps a little younger, goes and does, like, the history of the reality era, my God, they're going to have fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> abeyance and God knows what else. Dodgy Scott Armstrong. Um, anyway, well, we, we are already massively uh, off-piste. Um, as is our won't. So we uh, will actually get into what we're supposed to be talking about. Um, now, uh, Plan found a interesting... Was it an article you found? or is it? A... No, it was like a, a meme doing the rounds on social media kind of thing. Yeah, like the Mount Rushmore of WWE matches. Um, now, usually, of course, if you talk about a Rushmore, you're talking about, like, people. But, you know, the old... Uh, it's it's uh, Austin... Hogan, Cena, they always say, don't they? And I don't know who the fourth one would be. Yeah, Rock. Yeah, that's that's like yeah, that's like not a very interesting show. So what we thought we'd do is <laughs> is we'd actually um, have a look. Talk about all those people. <laughs> yeah, however, touches. in a different context. So <laughs> so uh, actually, there's no Hogan, is there? Thinking about there's it. no Hogan. No. Interesting. Uh, but we're going to look at the four matches that we would consider to be the Mount Rushmore of WWE matches, obviously uh, justifying our choices and having a chat about those matches and, and why we were considered to be that, both stylistically, the influence they had, the uh, historical weight that they carry, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so we're going to kick off in perhaps the most obvious place, uh, which is WrestleMania three, which is the semi-main event um, for the Intercontinental Championship uh Macho Man Randy Savage against Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Um, a feud which obviously had gone on for much of the previous year. They'd had a kayfabe larynx break of Ricky Steamboat. Um, and Macho was very much the uh, fighting heel IC champ. But uh, he was about to meet his match in what remains still today one of the most strikingly brilliant professional wrestling matches you're ever likely to see. I mean, the reason this was sort of my suggestion for inclusion and, um, you know, it's kind of difficult to find things to say about it that haven't already been said a thousand times over uh, by a a thousand different wrestling fans. And, you know, you and I have have made a habit through our time at LOP, both as columnists first and since as podcasters in trying to uh, tackle, uh, you know, folkloric ideas in wrestling and, and try and convince people that sometimes the pervasive opinion isn't necessarily um, the best informed. Uh, but sometimes it does ring true. And this is one of those occasions where it rings true. You know, everything they say about this match, <clears throat> the ever elusive they, is 
you know, spot on, 100% accurate. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm probably not well informed to make a judgment like this, but it's always been a match that I've looked back at and sort of seen as the genesis of that, you know, let's put it in in uh, speech, in quote marks, uh, that in uh, WWE style uh, sort of feels like it was born there and then because it's, you know, it's got drama, it's got false finish, uh, it's it's a show stealer, you know, everything that's kind of become a bit of a cliche, either in, in wrestling itself or wrestling criticism, you can find in, in that, wrestling match and i know a lot of people will say you know hogan and andre is the takeaway from wrestlemania 3 that's the one that inspired people to become wrestlers that's the one that you know transformed the landscape of professional wrestling that's the one that sold out the pontiac silverdome on such relatively short notice um <clears throat> you know but but the truth is the match sucks <laughs> in terms at least in terms of um content uh, yes exactly um so uh, you know I think if you, it, most people, maybe ourselves excluded because of our love for the full Nelson challenge, would probably pick, or yourself for your double love for the opener featuring Tom Zenk. Um, uh, most people would probably pick out, I dare say, Savage and Steamboat. If they were to pick out one match, they'd go back and rewatch at WrestleMania 3. And, you know, it still stands up it, stylistically in terms of content and, and uh, just the, the way they tell the story. You could easily pop it into a pay per view. Uh, into the pay-per-view last Sunday, which I haven't actually watched, uh, and I'm sure it would stand up. Or in a pay-per-view in two years, I'm sure it would it would stand up. Um, and I have and I have championed for the longest time uh, that if you want to talk about just from a strictly in-ring performance point of view, so not necessarily taking into account sort of box office or uh, influence necessarily in pop culture or um, you know anything like that. Although I do think he'd still. Pr- have a decent shot in such a conversation, but from a purely in ring performance perspective, I think that for my money, Randy Savage, and I've held this opinion for the longest time is the greatest of all time. Uh, and, and this is arguably his greatest match of all time. Maybe inarguably, I it's think, arguably, it's arguably inarguably his greatest I, match of all time. I think you, uh, often use the phrase, I think when I've seen you write about, um, about this match and actually about, about savage matches in general they tend to be 10 or 15 years ahead of their time you mm. know and, and i think that's the the largest compliment that you could you could pay it like whereas say um like you know bret hart matches feel like classics like as they unfold um you know that there's a certain uh i don't know how to put this really but a certain kind of like uh, brilliance in the traditionalism of Bret Hart matches. Oh. Randy Savage matches are violently futurist in, in their in their scope. You know that like you've talked before about how WrestleMania Seven um, essentially invented the modern epic. Uh, this match invents what would essentially become the default style for the mid card of WWF and WWE to this day. Um, you know it's it's the 40 or 15 minutes long, fast-paced, two guys that can really go. And and to this day, when you think of Intercontinental Champions, you think of guys like Ricky Steamboat and Randy Savage because, you know, there's so many successor stories to this story and it keeps going on. We've talked recently about the renaissance of this championship when Seth Rollins was holding it, when Dean Ambrose was holding it, when 
Kevin Owens was holding it, when The Miz was holding it, when Dolph Ziggler was holding it. Like, these sort of people would not exist without Steamboat and Savage and without what they did. Because, you know, there's no doubt about it. WWF in the mid-80s was seen as a big man league. Um, And the success of Savage and the success of Steamboat and, and, you know, and people that would come after them um, did mean that you had this idea that even if a Hogan match, you know, it's like has an emotional satisfaction, but perhaps not an aesthetic satisfaction, that you would go down into the mid card and you would have those tag teams tearing it up and you have these IC guys tearing it up. And it was a formula that just worked for them for the longest time, at least until you, you get to the new gen when the whole sort of formula changes. But that rock and wrestling period, they, they certainly were able to kind of uh, satisfy your eyes with the, um, the mid card and they satisfied your heart with the main event. And that's a clever trick that they pulled, I think. Absolutely. And you, and you think further to what you were saying about the narrative historically of the Intercontinental Championship. Uh, and again, I, I, I'm not sure that my knowledge is quite robust enough to make this claim, so I'll sort of phrase it more as a question, but open-ended question to anyone listening, um, or indeed to yourself. Uh, people have always talked about the Intercontinental Championship should be a stepping stone to, you know, to the main event. It's what you hold on your way to the main event. And you think about, you know, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and, and Razor, well, I mean, perhaps not with Razor Ramon, but, you know, across the... But the, some drugs, even, he probably would have done. <laughs> uh, even, uh, even uh, you know, Lashley, sort of Seth Rollins last year, in fact, yeah. it was it was very much that for him. It steps so back to um, the main event. That narrative feels like it probably originated because of the success of Savage and Steamboat, if not on the night of WrestleMania 3, then certainly uh, that rivalry. Because how many Intercontinental Champions before Randy Savage went on to become world champions directly as a result of their success as Intercontinental Champion? Well, zero. Um, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> it's, it's, exactly. Tito Santana and Greg Valentine were the two immediately before him. Great, both great mid-carters, but... Um... You know, never but made didn't it. go to the main event. I mean, yeah. had Tito Santana wrestled today, he'd probably be a, you know, a seven-time world champion, actually. But but um, those, you look were, those at, were different times. And you look at, uh, at what happened after Savage, you know, and, and Steamboat, and, you know, sure, Honky Tonk Man went on that long run with it, but Ultimate Warrior becomes Intercontinental Champion. It's a stepping stone uh, to uh, the main event. Mr. Perfect, Again, you know, it's it's sort of never really made that transition, but he was certainly a headlining act, if not an active uh, main eventer. But then, you know, you get to new gen, you get to attitude, and that's very much what it becomes. Bret Hart, The Rock, Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Steve Austin. You know, I'm sure Owen Hart would have made that transition eventually had had things not turned out so, so tragically um, in that regard. Um, and you go further down the line, you know, Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, sure, it was sort of, uh, Eddie Guerrero, you know, belated sort of uh, step up in, in that sense, but it still occurred. Uh, and again, it, it helped them transition into that headlining position, regardless I mean, of whether they were Jericho held a is a big one there, isn't he? Because he's a, a nine-time holder of this championship. Um, but, you know, yeah. his, his work opposite Benoit was massively instrumental into getting him to that point where we were with the invasion uh, when, we were, uh, when we were looking back at that and how he ends up becoming undisputed champ. 
Now, the interesting thing about all of this and the idea that maybe it did originate with the success of Savage and Steamboat is you could argue that it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it meant, uh, yes, it became, you know, a huge kind of tentpole career achievement for people in the wake of Savage and Steamboat's success. Uh, but at the same time, you could argue it stopped being an ends unto itself as a result. And that's perhaps contributed slowly over the course of decades to this idea that, you know, you have to end up as a world champion at some point, otherwise you are a dismal failure. Um, but sort of regardless of that, the, the, the ultimate point would be for me that, um, you know, aside from the fact the, the match quality still stands up and it's influential in, in terms of its structure and style, you know, from the perspective of the IC title, Again, it's a huge, huge, um, a huge, huge influence and arguably the genesis of the Intercontinental titles narrative in WWE's modern history. Oh, no doubt. Um, it, it's, uh, it's definitely it's definitely that kind of that kind of significant in those terms, I would say. Um, and I guess the other thing to say is that more than anything else, it it remains a match which is thrilling to sit through, you know, and I probably watched that match. Bear in mind, I had a VHS of WrestleMania three uh, when I was a kid that I played the absolute hell out of. Um, I must have seen that match upwards of 50 times. I swear I must have done. And yet every time you sit and watch it, you either discover something new or, it, it just completely takes you by surprise all over again. Um, and, and not only that, there's so many great folk narratives about it, you know, like the idea that, that, that uh, Savage made Steamboat rehearse it move for move until they had it down perfectly when the prevailing method of the day was to call things in the ring. And, and that, yet there they were doing this absolutely perfect choreographed dance of a wrestling match in 1987. It's absolutely unbelievable, really. Um, so uh, I think a worthy addition to our matches Mount Rushmore, really. I agreed entirely. Uh, right, so on to uh, our next one. So we're kind of looking chronologically here, uh, and it won't come as any surprise given anyone that knows anything about me and plan what the next <laughs> one's going to be. But also, this is probably the one match that I've never, ever found anybody objecting to in its place as perhaps uh well the greatest match of all time full stop uh and of course that is the submission match at wrestlemania 13 between bret hart and stone cold steve austin i mean where do you even begin with this one exactly um, uh i guess i'll begin by saying it is my number one you know it's my favorite match ever um and has been for pretty much my entire fandom since the first time i saw it uh, I think it's unblemished uh, in terms of how it plays out and how many matches can you genuinely say that about it. There isn't a single thing um, that either goes wrong or B you can at least tell goes wrong because if they they did a they did a podcast on Edge uh, they did Edge and Christian's podcast together did Bret and Austin um, where they sort of broke down the match with them uh, and uh, you know there were a couple of stories that they told about where something went wrong, but you just can't tell when you watch it. It's just so expertly crafted and, and sublimely executed. It caps off, you know, one of the greatest rivalries in, in professional wrestling's history, which is the kind of 
verbose statement you hear a lot today to the point that it gets diluted, but it you know genuinely applies in this instance, uh, is sandwiched by two uh, sort of more minor classics um, as well. Um, you know, it's it's got the kitchen sink in it if if content is your thing. Uh, it's got a raucous atmosphere. It's got a double turn at the end that transforms the two men into two incredibly historically important uh, characters that would, I think, mark quite possibly the best work of both men's careers um, for the for the following 12 months, arguably. Um, but I think inarguably in the case of Bret Hart, incidentally. Um, and ultimately, essentially, you know, you could talk about Montreal, certainly, and you can talk about uh, Austin's win at WrestleMania 14, but essentially opened the door or, or blasted the door wide open for the attitude, the fabled attitude era, um, which is a name that I even loathe to utter these days because of how sort of vaunted it is. But, um, you know, the, the, the attitude era with all its success financially and, and, and critically, uh, you know, starts again. It, you're talking about a genesis point in a sense. Uh, and that change was gradual. You know, it kind of started... 95-ish, the product started to get a little edgier and a little more violent. And 96, it, it sort of sped that process up. But this is the one that, that breaks the door down. And just, you know, like you say, where do you start with it? Because so many elements of it are in their own right iconic. I think the thing I love the most uh, is is just the fact that neither of them thought it was a good idea. Yeah. Like, I've always loved that, that, that you know, Brett very much felt that their program was done. You know, like he had done what he wanted to do, which was to make Austin a major star. And, and he, you know, he'd wanted to wrestle him. He'd been nagging Vince to wrestle Austin for a really long time. I think I think their paths had crossed somewhere on a house show. And Brett was like, this guy's a star. Vince, you got to, you know, you got to you got to put, you know, the machine behind him. Like, I want to help. Um, and but he felt like, you know, the program had come to an end. Like, you know, we had a great match at Survivor Series. You know, we we tangled at the Rumble like we had Final Four why are we doing, you know, why are we doing this now? Uh, and Austin was like, I don't have a submission finisher. <laughs> like, what are you, what are you doing to me? <laughs> a submission match. Um, but what was brilliant was that, was that they, they, they approached it in such a unique way. And I've always talked about the build to this match being incredibly underrated and something that people need to talk about more because it really helped the match ultimately because yeah. of this dance they did where it could have been any one of the four of them facing any one of the other the other three. And yeah. it ends up being Brett and Austin almost by this bizarre chain of circumstance where Brett gets screwed again and again and again. And Austin just won't let it won't let it go. It's like a dog with a bone. He just can't let go of his obsession with Bret Hart. And so you just have this situation where Brett is a good man that's been backed into this corner and he comes out in the most aggressive way he possibly could. And it's like the most uncharacteristic Bret Hart match you've ever seen. Only characteristic in how crisp it is, I suppose. Um, they beat the hell out of each other all over the arena. And it's like, you almost forget it's a submission match. It's a submission match that's not a submission match, particularly as there doesn't end up being a submission. <laughs> well, so this it's, is uh, genre yeah. bending stuff, really. Absolutely. That's what I was just about to say is, is the, the one accomplishment about it nobody ever talks about because it's just such a rush of accomplishments that it sort of gets lost in the tide of it, of its own success, is that it's, it's, it's almost, it feels almost apocryphal to call it a submission match for the reasons you've just said. But it, 
it also feels very fitting to say that it's a match about submission. Yes. Uh, in a number of ways, whether that is beating your opponent into submission physically uh, or mentally, in fact, or even emotionally, in fact. Um, or in the case of, of the double turn at the end, you know, you get this parable about, uh, in the case of Bret Hart, a man who submits to his own worst instincts. And you, you can almost feel his mind snap in the final moments of the match from, you know, uh, uh, because it goes way beyond Royal Rumble that year. And it stretches, you know, beyond even back from beyond WrestleMania 12, the preceding year. Um, uh, it's a, I mean, in a, in a weird way, it's a curious kind of, of situation, his career of, of, uh, art imitating life in a, in a strange sense, because you could make the argument that a lot of his bitterness that he's become infamous for in recent years is, is deserved simply for the fact that he did repeatedly get, you know, passed over despite his, his, uh, his unmatched status as the most reliable anchor for the company at, at the toughest time in its history. But, you know, it's a whole other conversation from the time. The point is the character, his character, had been evolving this way since he lost the title to Bob Backlund at Survivor Series 1994 when Owen screws him. Uh, and then he has a title match with Diesel that the ref throws out because he loses control. Um, you know, and then he has a feud with Jerry Lawler where he gets screwed out of wins by Jerry Lawler and embarrassed. And then he challenges Diesel. He gets beat up after the match with Diesel. Then he has WrestleMania 12 and he loses the title in sudden death uh, there. Then he comes back. He has to put up with Austin's kind of verbal barbs for months and months and months, sort of denigrating him. Then he, he wins the Rumble, but he doesn't win the Rumble. Uh, and, you know, and he wins Final Four, but the next night loses the title. And on and on it went. WrestleMania 13, this match, the most magnificent aspect to me about it, and the one that nobody talks about, because again, it's it's all based in, you know, the stuff we've discussed at length on this show, and I have on ICID about new gen myths, um, is the fact that it is the culmination of a of a character arc that stretched all the way back to the very sort of formative years of the new gen era. That's the that's the poetic part of it. Um, and then when you when you then sort of start to layer everything else on top, whether that's, as you said, it's it's kind of genre bending uh, bravery or whether that's its historical significance for introducing kind of the attitude era at a pace um, or whether that's the the very, very difficult to pull off, but, but marvelously successful double turn at the end. Hell, whether it's the introduction of Ken Shamrock to WWF's product in, in the most wonderful kind of um, natural way. Uh, whether it's the fact it's a WrestleMania show stealer, you know, you, like how many, it's a shopping list of achievements that you could throw at it. And it's got the influence and it's got the, 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 the everlasting evergreen quality. Uh, you know, how can you not include it in a conversation like this? There's, as you said, there's a, you're talking about a match that there is a, a, a an almost unbent consensus that anyone who talks about it will at least say it's at least one of the greatest matches of all time. And I dare say most people would say it's the greatest match of all time. And I think, I think the thing about the double turn is, you know, uh, Brett always said that the crowds didn't even know they wanted it until yeah. the moment they wanted it. And, and that's what's really clever is that, ostensibly, Austin is still the heel for most of this match, the vast majority of it. And it's only at that point where you mentioned that Brett snaps um and it's so well done like the whole thing and you know he plays him like a fiddle like by the time he's actually leaving the ring and shamrock has kind of you know 
managed to separate him and Austin. It's it's like you know they absolutely despise him, and of course then he cements it by showing up in the main events as well. Um, <laughs> I love that. Bret uh, so, Hart trolling the WrestleMania main event. <laughs> he was the he was the IWC before the IWC existed. What's really funny is you've actually got the two sides of the IWC because you've got Brett showing up and just jeering from the ring apron <laughs> and you've got Sean making sarcastic <laughs> remarks on commentary. <laughs> <laughs> like, Sean is basically a Twitter live feed during that, that main event. He really is. <laughs> um, oh, that's great. That's, that's a good one. We'll have to, like, we have to do like a, whole, a whole show on that at some point. <laughs> we'll do that live watch on the WrestleMania 13 main event. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah it is a it is just a, a breathtaking match and i think you know that edge and christian um show that that, that they have um brett and austin on before like it is like incredible to listen to their perspective on it and, and really incredible to to listen to edge and christian as absolute students of the game and how you know influential it was it was on them um, and I think that's that's kind of says it all that you know it's it just it, it resounds through um, you know through history as something which is just a a, a peerless achievement likely one that will never be bettered. And so its inclusion was was you know inevitable and borderline automatic. Yeah, frankly. it's the the biggest no brainer of, of of all of these. You'd probably say. I um, agree. Yeah. So all right, on to. Uh, well, on to the Attitude Era, funnily enough. Uh, this was probably the most difficult one to to pick, actually. Um, yeah. But it, when you look at it in terms of box office, uh, and when you look at it in terms of the absolute height of the industry, really, I guess you could say that WrestleMania 3 uh, has a, a claim to that. But but certainly, if you look at uh, if you look at this match in terms of the the two figures involved the box office involved the um weight it still bears with the fan base all of these years on um the status of the wrestlemania it appeared upon and really i think the 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 influence the match itself has had on future main event styles um you i think we both decided really that that uh austin rock at wrestlemania 17 um would be the one we would place here. It's maybe not the. It's well, in fact, it's certainly not the best match of the Attitude Era, but I think you'd be hard pushed to say it wasn't the biggest. Yeah, um, it's 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 a curious one in a sense uh, because of like you say, it didn't necessarily, you know, after we've just talked about a pair of no-brainers, really, this didn't necessarily immediately present itself in the same way, but. Um, uh, I think it probably, I think it is warranted to call it the height of the industry in a way that Hogan Andre wasn't necessarily because, you know, the maturity of it essentially. That, yeah, the maturity of it, um, the sense that, you know, Hogan Andre was a match that was sort of, or at least historically feels like it was in the first kind of, you know, it was like you had Hogan Andre, then you had the rest of Hulk Hogan's career after. Um, if that makes any kind of sense. Whereas this feels like it was at the height of both men's careers um, in the wrestling industry after they had already become, you know, ingrained in, in pop culture vernacular at the time. 
Um, you know, Austin had had a two-year run as the undisputed top guy of the company. Uh, the Rock had had a year-long run as the undisputed top guy in the company when Austin was out with his with his uh, neck injury, and that curious set of circumstances created that historical anathema of the fact the company had two Hulk Hogan's at the same time, um, and you know that I think combined with, I mean, ultimately, if you want to boil it down to uh, you know one-line criteria, you've got uh, the main event match of what is the most popular, popularly enduring WrestleMania of all time, and arguably the best match on the card. Uh, you've got, you know, the the main event of the biggest WrestleMania of the biggest era in in wrestling's history, at least financially speaking. Um, you've got uh, the most popular match between two of the most popular wrestlers of all time. So there's there's various angles. Uh, at which you can you can contextualize it in a single line where you go actually it's 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 perfectly warranted as part of a rap Mount Rushmore of of wrestling matches. Um, in terms of the content of it, I think it's I think it would be it would be true or as true as something like this can be to say that it's not necessarily the greatest match ever, um, but I think that it's the pinnacle of matches of its type um both in terms of its placement uh, on an attitude era specific card um but also in a wider historical context i recently recorded for for future airing at christmas uh, a couple of episodes of sports entertainment is dead with our friend from lp primetime who hangs around a lot on twitter as well uh, and uh we were talking, um, or I was talking about how dotted through history, you have every sort of generation or so you have a WrestleMania main event that seems to encapsulate uh, its era, but also encapsulate the pinnacle of a certain type of match. So in Hogan versus Warrior, you had the quintessential big man match in or strongman match. In Brett versus Sean at WrestleMania 12, you had the quintessential wrestling match. Uh, and in the case of Austin and Rock, you have the quintessential brawl, uh, which was the, the main event, essentially the main event style of the time. Uh, and, and you know, just in terms of, of, of sticking to that in the purest fashion, to sticking to that style in the most unflinching fashion, you'd be very, very hard pressed to find anything that does it quite as infectiously successfully as Austin Rock at WrestleMania 17. It's the kind of match when you go back and you revisit it, uh, you sort of end at the, at the end of it. You 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 end up on a high as much as you did when it happened, uh, and for it to have that kind of lasting effect, and for it to do that almost in spite of its content, in a sense, because you have a heel turn at the end that lives in infamy. Uh, that a lot of people, and we've sort of just recently been trying to combat that this idea as part of our invasion series that we've done. That a lot of people say was a mistake, where Austin sides with him a man. Um, but you also you also have a whole host of habits in the match that if they were to happen in a main event match today, I would be you know I'd be blowing my top off uh, because you've got so much kicking out of finishing moves in the match. It's 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 frankly obscene, but they pull it off. They've got the charisma to pull it off. They've got the energy to pull it off. They've got the the setting to pull it off. 
Um, and and maybe it's because it back, happened before it was a fashion. Yeah, this is the thing. Back then, you know, this match and the match that Rock has with Angle the month before, you know, those were those were matches which used this technique, you know, the stolen finishes and the and the uh, the kickouts and the um, I mean, in this case, uh, you know, more interference and 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 screwy stuff than you know um, a month of Sundays, but but they they use it in such a way as to enhance the drama of a era defining or era ending for some people um match like this was a match where they they announced a no dq stip suddenly out of nowhere and, uh, and like i remember Heyman really played that up on the commentary yeah like who put that on there um and you know they it, you know the narrative of the matches they can't put each other away and they get more and more and more desperate to the point where austin who is being desperate to go back to his place as the undisputed you know, top of the industry since he came back from the neck injury and trying to make up for lost time. You know, I need to beat you up. I need to beat you more than you could ever imagine. Or you need to beat him so much that he has to unite events with Vince And that is the narrative twist that is so brilliant, I think. And then, you know, people, even if people don't like what happened afterwards and like we discussed, we don't agree with that. But if you watch this match and then you just turn it off at the end of the match, I think you'd be silly not to say that it was an, it, it wasn't an effective ending because it is a massively effective ending to what is uh, a, a sort of grueling and you know physically exhausting match, but one which is, despite its lengthy runtime, an absolute blast to go and rewatch, as you said. So it doesn't feel half an hour long. It really doesn't feel half an hour long, you know. That's and that's always the sign of something that's riveting, isn't it? Because um, you know the number of times I've been sat watching a match. Uh, and sort of been clock watching essentially waiting for it to be over because they haven't grabbed your attention um and so again you know from the criteria that we keep discussing with with the two we've mentioned so far you know you have the 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 evergreen quality um is it i mean how much influence do you think it has because that's a curious one i mean i know that it has a lot of love among wrestling fans but it's not like you hear uh, necessarily uh, the same kind of veneration for it from other professional wrestlers, even from someone like Austin who has his own podcast. But if you think about the way in which NXT in particular uh, has functioned <laughs> over the Do past... I have to? Well, yeah, over the past couple of years, well, you know, in a lot of ways, <laughs> a lot of ways, these kind of Johnny Gargano matches are a kind of cruiser version of this. You know, I mean, taking these these tropes to an extreme, which you and I have found distasteful, but but you know, I I personally can see the influence of it. You know, even in the the this sort of uh, the way in which they ran the Champa Gargano fuse. You know, this kind of idea of um, you know taking each other to the absolute limit until you know there's nothing left. Um, yeah, you, you can kind of see that. And I think you can see it in some of the other, you know, main roster, main events that they've done. Um, and even the fact that the sort of tropes like, you know, uh, managers or authority figures betraying people. Um, yeah, that remained a trope well after the end of the Attitude Era for, for quite a long time. And things like, you know, the blood and stuff like that. You know, I always saw 
that kind of, you know, up until the point they banned blood finally, it, it became something where it was used because that was just the thing that happened in wrestling matches. Yeah. You know? And at that point, I was almost happy to see it go because it was like every match had to have colour at some point. It'd be like that during the Attitude Era, certainly. Um, I had to have a table bump, had to have a blade job. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I remain mildly unconvinced, I have to be honest. I've, I've always put things like NXT more down to a Frankenstein monster's mix of Japanese strong style being so fashionable and Triple H and Shawn Michaels not having any kind of creative filter of their own. But uh... Okay, so uh, we're going to look now at our final pick. And I think this is another one which I think is just historically um, incredibly influential uh, and sort of, I guess, again, it's an era-birthing one in a similar manner to... Uh, Austin and Brett. Um, so we're going to look at CM Punk uh, versus John Cena from Money Bank 2011. Not only uh, a very, very good match, but of course famous for the, at the time, uh, you know, unparalleled crowd activity. Yeah. Um, I think this is one where people quite the level of influence and impact that this match had um on a on a wider historical note um and on a more individual note as well uh, it was obviously the match that saw cm punk make that jump that everybody had wanted or most people had wanted to see him make and as, as an absolute certified top guy um it was easy. It's easy to forget that before this match, Cena had an unrivaled reputation as being someone who just coasted his way through, you know, through matches. Um, I very, very vividly remember Chavo Guerrero of all people, who wasn't even with the company at the time. I think writing something on the internet challenging John Cena to step up his game and prove that he was able to hang as a top wrestler in the world, and that kind of shift that we saw in his career started here. Um, you know, because up until that point, he had been wrestling the same dreary stuff for most of his his main event run. Um, but more importantly, it was it was the beginning of that reality era that changed everything. And 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 people have to understand that it genuinely changed everything from the way the product uh, functioned, the way the IWC interacted with it, uh, the prevalence of social media. Uh, the recruitment strategy of the company, its willingness to embrace a different kind of top star. And I'm not talking in terms of physical size, which was a barrier that was had been broken down many years before. It uh, is in constant need of repeatedly breaking down, but nonetheless, it happened before. I'm talking about guys who came from an indie background, who were essentially self-made, part of a self-made generation that hadn't come through OVW, that hadn't been created by WWE's own, you know, first developmental system that produced your Brock Lesnar's and your Batista's and your Randy Orton's and your John Cena's, who at the time were deeply unpopular as a generation of, of wrestlers. It freed up the creative. It opened it up to renewed creative practices. Uh, it, I mean, there's, there's a, there is a wave of influences that began with this match 
And at the time that it went down, I mean, I, I can't speak for you, Mav, but certainly from, from my perspective, uh, at the time it went down, it felt like nothing that had happened before in, in my, uh, certainly my recent memory as a, as a wrestling fan. It felt so different when CM Punk did the infamous pipe bomb promo on Monday Night Raw and the internet was so alive with, you know, debates about whether it was a work or whether it was it was a shoot. You know, had they allowed it to happen? Had CM Punk gone into business for himself? What was going on? Had he re-signed? Was he genuinely not re-signing? You know, and and just the entire situation felt utterly unprecedented in WWE. And it's very, very rare for a company so old and so married to its ways to find a situation that feels genuinely unprecedented and on so many different levels as well. And had this angle and that match not been a success, you have no idea as to whether something like NXT may have even become what it's become in terms of so proactively and aggressively going after recruiting globally seasoned talent and independently proven talent, or whether it would have continued to maintain a system uh, in which, um, for the most part, not 100% exclusively, but for the most part, it was trying to develop people in-house. So um, a, a hugely, hugely influential match that introduced uh, you know, one of their more successful areas creatively um, and, and essentially began a process of change that just altered the entire way WWE functions and the entire way that the wrestling audience interacts, you know, with WWE. Hijacking shows started, you know, essentially the germ of it was 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 sown here. Um, you know, that, that raucous week at the beginning of 2014 has its origins rooted right here um the idea of uh, you know the lost generation that we've talked about so much on this show um and the idea of a youth movement and wwe refusing to move with the times refusing to push new talent you know it, it everything was encapsulated about everything about the postmodern wrestling conversation was encapsulated in this match i mean yeah a lot a lot to break down there i think you know the sort of smug smug belief that good wrestling couldn't be taking place anywhere else in the world but in wwe was something that massively held them back in that sort of mid to late 2000s era uh, and cm punk a guy who you know took a chance in signing with wwe knowing that they didn't really uh like wrestlers of his type he took a chance and he signed with them you know he almost ended up leaving a couple of times before this um, and the, that all led to them putting together this unbelievable story based around the real life knowledge that uh, that he was unhappy and has been for a while. And what he represented for the everyday wrestling fan or at least the everyday IWC fan was was incredible. Now, it, you know, my my perspective this was a little bit different in the sense that I didn't follow him on the indies and fall in love with him by watching him in WWE. Um, so, you know, I was ex as excited as anybody, but perhaps for a different reason to everybody else, which was just, oh, you know, my guy is getting is getting some spotlight. And, you know, I think it's one of those matches where it draws you into the story so that as much as this is possible in the world we live in now, 
it's that magical suspension of disbelief for the duration of the match. And I think that's its greatest achievement is the fact that it does it it does leave you on that that cliffhanger with that volcanic crowd and with that knowledge of what is CM Punk going to do. And they tease you with the lol Cena wins so many times. You have Vince come down and try and do the Montreal screw job. You have Alberto Del Rio knocking about. Um, and it's just so cathartic to see CM Punk get the three count, get that belt, jump over the barricade, blow Vince a kiss and, and go off into the night still in his wrestling trunks and get in a car. Like, what an absolutely brilliant end to a professional wrestling match. As you say, so postmodern, plays on so many, like, fears and hopes and dreams of, of wrestling fans. And as you say, it ushers in Daniel Bryan and it ushers in, um, you know, aggressive talent spotting on the indie circuit. And, you know, for a while, for a good while after this, WWE was in a very healthy place. And I think that's perhaps what's been forgotten more than anything else was that this actually ushered in a really good era of pro wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. And it did so because it was a rousing success. Um, you know, I think, I think sometimes we don't necessarily talk enough about um, how um, important it was for certain matches in history to succeed. We always talk about, you know, how they did succeed, why they succeeded what their success led to. Um, it's easy to forget that such successes, you know, are far from a guarantee going in. It could have very easily have fallen flat on its face as much as any wrestling match could very easily fall flat. I mean, it would have had to have, maybe not very easily when you consider that it was in Chicago, you know, and Sam Punk had cut the, the, the promos he had going in. Um, but it's, it's, it's a critical success, especially with a, an audience as fickle as the IWC and, and the people armed with social media. Uh, you know, I, I mean, the social media point, I think, is very important because it's easy to forget that, you know, how rapidly that has become central to our society over the last few years. Um, and you could go back just as recently as or as relatively recently as 2011. I mean, that's almost 10 years ago now, um, which is a horrifying thought. But, um, you know, even even as relatively recently as 2011, it wasn't it wasn't quite in the same. It didn't quite have the same level of importance as it has uh, now. But what you had was a sense that this entire community. I remember because I've been around LOP since 2008 that for a long time, the predominant conversation was. They don't even recognize the IWC exists. And here they were doing just that. You know, CM Punk presented himself as the voice of the voiceless. And when you use the word cathartic, I think that's the word of the moment. And I think that's the key to why it succeeded um, and why it had to succeed. Uh, because the whole idea of this entire program was predicated upon the notion of WWE essentially opening its eyes for want of a better phrase and realizing, you know, that there is this whole section of the fan base. And I think people again, underestimate how much WWE play to their internet audience these days, play to the IWC these days and did throughout the entire reality area, which for the most part, I think had a lot of creative uh, rooted in the, the, the easy spread of misinformation on the internet, the, the, the blurring of lines between what's real and what's not for a while intermittently was able to weaponize that. And again, it all starts here. Um, 
but even taking that aside, you know, just from a purely creative standpoint, how singular this match is in that sense, because you have this sense of a ticking clock, you know, which is always the, the fastest, easiest way to add tension to any story, um, which was CM Punk's contract. I always, I always, I always hear it so clearly in my head as they, I think CM Punk walks to the ring, Michael Cole saying, um, you know, at midnight tonight, CM Punk's contract with WWE expires. Um, we don't know if he's re-signed or not. You know, I mean, the, the commentary is woefully misguided in how it presents CM Punk's character and his motivations, but that's WWE. Um, and then you get this sweeping 30-minute match, which was nothing like we'd seen Cena wrestle in particular for a long time. Um, and kudos to him because it was very much... I mean, in a strange way, you want to call it the defining CM Punk match. It's just as much of a defining John Cena match in a curious manner because... Um, and I think he even referenced this in the build-up to the match. Um, you know, he's in hostile territory um, in the same way he was when he wrestled, or would be like months later when he wrestles The Rock in Miami at WrestleMania, same way he'd been in the past when he wrestled RVD at ECW's One Night uh, Stand in 2006. And here he is at the heart of Chicago in one of the most uh, emotively charged matches in the WWE's history. Um and he's the champion, and he's very much the bad guy, and he doesn't flinch, and he still puts in that, that remarkable performance in his own right. Uh, and it's kind of a bit rough around the edges, as CM Punk's work tended to be a lot of the time, uh, but it works because it just makes it feel even more uh, gritty and earthy and uh, and and grimy, and it, and it feels like a sweatbox. And, you know, it's one of those matches, at the risk of sounding incredibly pretentious by my own standards, that you forget you're watching wrestling. And that's when you know you have magic on your hands is when you go back, you revisit a match or you're watching the match live and you are totally transported away from the room that you're watching it in. And it feels like you're there and it feels like life and death rides on the result. You know, that's the kind of emotional investment you want. And that's the kind of emotional investment it encourages and it achieved at the time, uh, quite apart from all of its more, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, critical or objective uh, achievement. Yeah, quite. I think I think that line you said about uh, it doesn't feel like you're or you're watching wrestling. It feels like you're kind of in the middle of in the middle of watching it. Sort of something very very real happen. And yeah, the wrestling has always worked best when that kind of suspension of disbelief has been you know has been at its height. And what they did cleverly here is they blurred those lines again like they you know the idea of 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 breaking a fourth wall of uh, acknowledging that there's a group of fans that are a bit more knowledgeable than they should be like the whole thing is just unbelievably postmodern but it it comes together in the most organic way too the i mean one of its its kind of quieter home runs is the fact is that promo that they did in the build-up to it it might have been the contract sign i can't remember where CM Punk called John Cena the New York Yankees. Yep. You're not an underdog, you're a dynasty. Um, and it was really the first feud that John Cena had been in since he became top dog that actively acknowledged the idea that he was being presented as the underdog was bullshit. Uh, because for, it was one of the worst aspects of that latter-day first brand extension. You knew Cena was going to win. You know, Lol Cena wins, as you said earlier. 
but they they were incessant they were relentless about their presenting him as the unlikely underdog and when he would win he would act like it was a big surprise and he didn't expect to win and he was the unlikely underdog uh, and he tried to sell it that way. They had him. They wrote him, his character, trying to sell it that way. Uh, and CM Punk was allowed to say, no, I, you know, you're you're the dynasty now. And now I'm the I'm the underdog. And that's the way that it is for so many guys back there in the locker room. And to be that self-aware and for WWE to be that self-critical is in its own right unprecedented. You know, I mean, even now, WWE tend not to self-criticize. You know, you buy their. I bought their. Uh, foolishly got suckered in <laughs> by their marketing. I bought their their Blu-ray release many years back, called the True Story of WrestleMania. I thought maybe they've actually, you know, maybe the true story of WrestleMania. I thought maybe they've actually got some interesting stuff to say in this, and it wasn't. It was the usual, you know, corporate uh, marketing lines. WrestleMania Nine was a huge critical success, and you know, Steve Austin redefined WrestleMania and all the rest of it. And you'd sort of go with it. Well, whatever. Um, but here they are essentially admitting to their own faults through the creative of this storyline. That's the very point of the storyline. That's why the storyline exists. You know, you're not the best. I'm the best. I've been the best since day one when I stepped into this godforsaken company or whatever it is, he says. You know, that's that's the kind of um, uh, self-critical awareness that I wish they would demonstrate more because I think it shows a bravery in their storytelling and I think it shows a... Uh, a humility in their production. I'll tell you something else as well. I know this ends up morphing into a, a situation where Vincent Marmer's involved. But I can't help but think that, you know, the, the, the really clever thing about this was it presented um, another wrestler as being the establishment, not an authority figure. And this is where they've gone so, yeah. so wildly wrong with this Kevin Owens stuff. Because it's like Kevin Owens going up against Shane Marner in a painful retread of stuff from 22 years ago or something. Um, whereas if you look at this Cena and Punk stuff, Cena is the establishment. He is the franchise. He is the brand. And Punk's anti establishment diatribes are aimed at john cena you know you're the problem (laughs) like that is the that's the point you know and i think that you know like their involvement of vince and trips as this thing evolved was obviously how they ended up fumbling it and having to kind of you know do a bit of backpedaling later on but but in the build-up the idea is that john cena is the establishment which he was, you know, and, and everyone knew it, but it, for so long they refused to... No one had to, said it, yeah. Yeah, they refused to acknowledge it on screen. They ref- And they, like I said, they kept selling false narratives. Um, the, the, you know, fans can... fans As as much as I rag on, on wrestling fans as being too hypercritical and too self-aware, um, you know, it's, 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 it's very easy to detect when something feels... Um, or... Rather, it's easy to tell when something doesn't feel authentic um, or, or true to nature, true to itself. And and they never did with John Cena. I think that was one of the big issues with his entire career and helped that anti-Cena sentiment fester for so long because it never felt authentic. Um, you know, and, he, and he, he became popular because he suddenly became, he suddenly felt so authentic when he was doing the, the Doctor of Thugonomics thing. 
Uh, and the minute he got to the top, it, it transformed into just a marketing machine that never felt true. And it never felt like you were seeing John Cena. It felt like you were seeing some corporate image of a top guy um, asking you to uh, to to emote and empathize with someone who was just you know, always going to win. And, and it, because of that lack of authenticity, it failed. And the one thing that with about this match that we're talking about and the program leading up to is it felt authentic. It felt, because it was, you know, CM Punk was being allowed to channel his frustrations into the creative. Uh, and through that, he channeled a lot of the frustrations of the fans. And that was the real genius of it, was recognizing CM Punk's sentiments were shared by wrestling fans. I don't know if they recognized that at first, you know, who knows whether they were expecting it to catch on the way that they, the way that it did. But, um, you know, reg again, regardless of intention, that was the result. That was the, the achievement by the end of it. And that's what marks it out as so singular in WWE's history. And one of the most influential matches, I think, in, in their history as well. No doubt at all. It's, it's, uh, you know, incredibly important as a historical, um, confluence of events uh it's incredibly important in terms of what it birthed um and you know the match itself um it is pretty influential too uh, not least because many of the same tricks they would later employ uh during the rise of daniel bryan so certainly yes. certainly uh fitting of a place on our mount rushmore of wrestling matches um and so next week we're going to do a similar thing except we are going to get a little bit creative and think of a mount rushmore with some more hip picks because <laughs> we you know we all know that uh the right side of the pond we love a hipster pick the hipster pick side of the pond maybe we should rename ourselves that actually no i don't want to be branded the same as you yeah, well, you know. No offense. <laughs> uh, I I just like the fact that uh, you know I've managed to make hipster pick such a thing. It's it's now a regular. <laughs> it, it's now a regular show. <laughs> at what at what point does hipster pick become too mainstream to be a hipster pick, and the mainstream becomes the hipster pick? You you start having to comb Wikipedia for bizarre wrestling matches, <laughs> like like that, that that one where there's like a lawnmower and stuff. You have to start looking for those. <laughs> Let's hope it never comes to that. I don't think the world's ready for that, Mav. <laughs> no, probably not. Probably, you know, we won't have any... Uh, um, who was that stable that used to bring out a lawnmower? <laughs> I can't remember. The Mexicals? Oh, yeah. Like, for God's sake. That's the worst sleep racial stereotyping in the whole world. I know. Tell me about it. Couldn't oh. get away with it today. Although maybe they could. Mm, um... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what, a, what, what a week. What a pond. Uh, we will see you next time. Listen to the rest of LFP Radio shows uh, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.